Well, good evening to each of you. <clears throat> I've been looking forward to this for some time. I have been uh, somewhat immersed in, in uh, history of our local folks, and uh, it is time, I think, to unload. But uh, honestly, there's, there's so much here, um, so many lives that are involved that a, a brief 45 minutes here this evening, um, I will not be able to touch the, the legacy uh, that I have seen in the people that are resting out here in our graveyard. And that was, that was the goal, to, to be able to challenge us, uh, maybe here at the beginning of a new year especially, to think about those lives lived and those people who invested so much in right here and um, that we owe a great deal to. Think about their lives, though they did not uh, think what they were doing and living faithful lives every day. They didn't think that was such a great thing to do. It was just a way of life. Looking back, you know, legacies are built one day at a time. And... Um, we don't realize when we're doing it, perhaps, but a life lived for Jesus builds a legacy in the simple things. <clears throat> well, I've got a lot to cover, and I uh, don't want to keep you here too long. Um, here's a list of the current residents in our graveyard uh, with their, with their um, birth and death dates. Epitaphs on the tombstone, which is a, a lesson in itself. <clears throat> but first I want to talk just a little bit about the whys of graveyards, and maybe we know this intuitively, I don't know. But um, <clears throat> have you ever wondered about graveyards? Why we make such a deal of the passing of a person? Um, why we have visitations and and... Uh, viewings and funerals and why we treat the dead with respect and and so forth while we have a designated spot out here to to bury them in and maintain it and what uh, is it for the living and the memories of the dead that we have um, that's important uh, going through the grieving process we do that as a church going through the grieving process and and Coming alongside families that are hurting those times, that's an important part of finding closure and, and bonding as a church. But uh, I think there's more than that there, and I don't know if you thought about it. <clears throat> we don't often talk about it, but those saints' bodies that are laid to rest are waiting a glorious resurrection. Those sowed in corruption, they'll be raised incorruptible. So I say that a Christian burial in a quiet graveyard is not just a nice tradition. It's a acknowledgement of the physical resurrection of the believer that will take place at some day, at some uh, at some time. <clears throat> Have you noticed at, at funerals, uh, I pay attention to these things, but those involved will carefully orient the coffin, roll them down the aisle to the graveyard. They're laid to rest with the feet to the east uh, on the back where... Uh, as, the, as, as the resurrection would happen and they stand, they'll be facing into the eastern sky. Um, that's that's the, the idea behind that, and uh, we're, we're careful about making that happen. 
Um, <clears throat> now, you know, and I know, death isn't always orderly or neat, and, and decay happens, and, and so forth, but we have a role we can play, and it's, it's, it's partly for us, it's partly for the dead, uh, to honor what God told us. Job said, though my body decays, somehow, some way, in my flesh I'll see God. And in John it says, all they that are in graves will hear God's voice and shall come forth. And Paul in Corinthians 15, he connects the bodily resurrection of saints to the resurrection of Christ. So there's a mystery here. Uh, we don't know how this will all work out, but we're going to leave it to God to sort it out. We'll do our part uh, in, in re being respectful to uh, the, those that pass on. <clears throat> now, uh, why walk through our graveyard? Why, why do we want to, to look through there? Why do we want to uh, recognize these people? Is it some kind of a, a morbid fascination or a casual interest? You know, we sort of take our graveyard for uh, granted down here. It's pretty close by, and uh, you know, children chase softballs up through the headstones, and um, our school sale parking is kind of all around it. The train rides go close by, and sometimes the idea of a picket fence comes up. And um, I think it's appropriate to have it close by to remind ourselves of, of those gone on. That's what we're doing tonight. I think it's good for us occasionally to, to wander down there and think about those people, uh, not just family members, but uh, any of us. So who are these people, these deceased that uh, we have just down the hill here? Well, I, I said there's 19 occupants currently. And the interesting fact I found is that anyone 15 years old and under would never have met almost 70% uh, of the people buried there. So uh, if you're 20 or under, you wouldn't have a working knowledge hardly of, of most of the people in the graveyard there. So you don't really know what they, who they were, what they stood for, what kind of lives they lived, uh, what challenges they had. So I think we have a, a treasure in the legacy that these folks left. They lived lives by faith. And uh, that can challenge us and encourage us to persevere. You know, after Hebrews 11 <clears throat> uh, tells of the many faithful there in the Old Testament that live by faith, and Hebrews 12 starts out by referring back to them as the great cloud of witnesses who watch our progress and maybe cheer us on. So it's intriguing for me to think of our own little, little cloud uh, of people who chose to, to move here, live here, serve here, invest their lives here, or even suffer and endure sickness here in this church community. People who probably wouldn't have thought twice about their lives being anything special at all, but chose to love this little congregation and in taking one faithful step after another, built an exemplary legacy of perseverance. And when they died, we buried them here. <clears throat> Some died suddenly, unexpectedly, scarcely time to say goodbye. Others suffered long and patiently till they were delivered. Some we never knew who they really were, the infants, the handicapped, those in some way trapped inside themselves. God is sovereign and his purpose are his alone. 
But I believe he has used the life and existence of each of our graveyard's occupants to affect us in some way. Are they watching? Are they cheering? Quite possible. Our task is to run with patience because we have our own race to run. Okay, uh, let's take a walk now. Um, not literally. See a few sweaters and jackets, and there was some rumor that we may actually have been heading out there, but uh, not so. Two disclaimers first. Um, the folks we'll talk about tonight were as human as we are. Uh, they had moments of weakness and likely made some poor choices, like we do. I've heard of a few as I researched this talk. We want to celebrate the good, the godly, and the noble tonight because that was God's effect on them. And that's the challenge that we want to receive. <clears throat> Disclaimer number two, I'm working from my memory and the memories of folks I've talked to. I've read extensively in my dad's church history book, uh, this with grateful hearts, I'd recommend it. Uh, but my recollections are mine, and I'm sure you have other recollections and thoughts and memories and Merle has openings for more Sunday evening talks, I think, if you want to share yours. <clears throat> so let's, let's walk down across the ball field, figuratively, and approach our cemetery from the west, up the little slope, and just look at it a bit. It's a lovely spot, a slight north to south grade. Uh, it's nicely grass now. The grass is full of fallen acorns from the oak trees that border the west edge, and there's a, a small dogwood that sits out in the middle of it uh, in the back row of graves. It's, it's caused a few issues digging graves a few times, but um, we generally agree that we want to leave it there. It's, it's fitting. So it's a quiet place. <clears throat> Perhaps appropriately, the, the first graves we come to are the only children buried there. There, except for those first two stones, there are no, no one there is under 21 years old. And uh, the first one there in the southwest corner is uh, Bob, the infant son, a little plaque that says the infant son of Bob and Almeria Yoder. And uh, that child died in complications in childbirth and on July 6th of 1979. <coughs> this was, uh, like I said, Bob and Almeria's little one. No name on the plaque, but uh, they had actually named him John David. This is some of an email that uh, they wrote to me. On July 6th, 1979, our second son, our second child, John David, was stillborn due to complications. There's more here, but uh, I'll skip through. We chose to trust God's sovereignty instead of being bitter when we didn't understand. And we look forward to seeing our son in heaven, Bob and Almeria. Just north, another small plaque. Almost 10 years later, November 22nd, 1988, James and Regina Zare 
Uh, James was our deacon at the time. They buried a little preemie there, scarcely half term. His name was Adriel Lees there. And the epitaph conveys their confidence that he was one of God's flock. God's purposes can be unclear to us. Our task is to trust. But one thing is sure, and I heard this at a funeral I was at recently, for a family to build a circle, to begin a circle in heaven, uh, our circles must be broken here below. And though they had not even known these children, they had to lay their hopes and dreams down for, for their families. And certainly, uh, God's purposes were served there with these two, two infants by the, by the touch of death on those families. <clears throat> and we know, as, as James has said, that um, the Ladrils, one of God's flock, and uh, Bob's are looking forward to seeing their son in heaven. That's truth. <clears throat> Okay, stepping back, next row to the south, from south to north on the second row. Brother John Stolzfus is buried there. He was born October 2nd, 1928, and died November 20th, 2002. This is Naaman's dad, uh, Mary's husband, affectionately known to us all as Big John. Let me share a few memories. <clears throat> I still remember when John, Mary, and Naaman moved here from upstate New York. About around 1980, they were down Thanksgiving of 1980, and I'm not sure if they moved the next year then or sometime soon after. They were a, a lively, fun-loving family, uh, still are, and we learned to appreciate them all. They fit in here, and I see that time after time with the folks that that I've uh, looked at here is how people fit in and, and wanted to help out and just take a hold and, and make things work here, and uh, they did. John had been a beachy minister. <clears throat> he was useful. He preached sometimes and helped. I, I saw a number of times in Daddy's notes where John had helped with the, the funeral and, and was uh, just a hands-on, helpful man. Some of my memories, <clears throat> we were in Guatemala in 88, and MAM had need of house parents, and John and Mary consented to come down. <clears throat> they had planned to stay longer, but the, tile, the hard tile floors bothered Mary's feet so badly that it was, she felt they couldn't continue. And I, I do remember spending a, a morning with them walking all over Zone 1 of Guatemala City, at, looking at all the different shoe stores, trying to find something that might help uh, make a difference where they could stay on, but it was not to be. And <clears throat> so they, after three months, I think they came back home, but they had servants' hearts. And this is a story that John told me that I've never forgotten. Um, we were, as we were prone to do, we'd, uh, we had to wait at times for different things. And John and I were sitting in the vehicle in front of a dentist's office for a number of hours one day waiting on someone And he was telling me his life story. And, um, and I'm not sure if I have this all right, but I, I know he was, I think, an Amish blacksmith. He was at least a blacksmith in the early days. 
things were, were going well, and, and then he was, things changed. He had to move, and he was a beachy minister, and then he was called upstate New York, and, and things were going well there, and then they, things changed, and uh, they came to Virginia, and, and uh, job, and so forth. Um, you know, when things were going well, then things like they changed again, and he was ready to settle down for things to go on, you know, well for a while, but uh, it, things, circumstances kept changing, he would have to move on. But the verse he told me that seemed to keep coming to him time and again was, and your ear will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And uh, that was his testimony. He felt led, even through all the circumstances of change there that uh, you know, he would have as soon avoided sometimes, he felt led. In later years, more changes faced John. He had a ruptured appendix, pretty serious. And uh, in his upper 60s, he was approaching retirement. I remember him joking about wanting to take Mary to the West Coast on a Honda Goldwing. Um, I'm not sure if he was serious or not, but he wanted to work till he was 70 and then retire, Naaman told me, but he fell sick at 69 with the heart problems that eventually took him five years later. And uh, so change again for John. But he stayed as busy as he could. He uh, worked in his small workshop there, uh, making wooden toys, little tractors, uh, we have a Conestoga wagon home with a set of horses in front that John made that uh, I really am glad I have. We visited John just before we went to Guatemala for a visit in 02, and uh, he was still interested in the work there, and we talked about people he knew, and, and uh, he'd send greetings, and we were having breakfast the last day we were there, about to fly home. We got the phone call that... John was gone. I was glad we were able to get home and I was able to help some with the funeral. And um, I know John understands now how God was leading him and what his purposes were. A faithful man, <clears throat> a human, but a, a, good, a good man with God's help and a friend of us and a brother. Just north, little Mike Briscoe, and few of you would remember Mike. Some of you would. He was a little fellow that uh, was a handicapped boy. He was confined to a wheelchair, couldn't talk. He, he was small, um, maybe the size of a five or six-year-old. But the Henry Zook family cared for him. He was a foster child. He, uh, he communicated joy and happiness. I remember he, was, he would sit back here uh, in the aisle after church. He was happy to have folks go by and talk to him. He, uh, when someone showed him some, some care and some love, he would respond. Don't know exactly what God's purposes were for Mike, but he, he did affect us. Big John was actually one who often spoke to Mike after church, and uh, he actually had part in his funeral. A devotional. The school children sang, Can You Count the Stars of the Evening? And God knew little Mike, the youngest person buried here, except for the stillborns. 
One plot north is where Steve Beachy's buried. Steve was born December 13, 1955, died August 15, 1987. He's Jesse and Ruth's son, brother to Esther and Glenn. Steve was a quiet man, a bit reserved. Didn't really, I didn't really know him that well. I remember Steve wanting the independence of his own transportation and bring his moped to church sometimes. Steve and Glenn were often together, and uh, Glenn and the family miss him still. We were in Guatemala in 87 when we'd heard he'd been tragically struck by a car, and his epitaph is all of our hope, accepted in Jesus. A double stone just north of Steve's is Menno and Annie's there, and I don't even know where to start on this one. Um, this story goes to the roots of this congregation and beyond. Um, for starters, they're the oldest folks buried out here. Um, Mena was born in, on December 21st of 1894. That's not in the last century even, it's the one before that. And Anna was born in 1895, 7-19, 1895. Mena lived to the ripe old age of almost 100. He was 99, I believe. Uh, he, was, he died in 5-8 of 1993. And uh, Anna died in 1987. <clears throat> um, Mena and Annie were Rosalie's parents and uh, Ray's parents-in-law, Sharon, Joe, uh, Joe's grandparents, Glenn, John, Juanita's grandparents. I hope I'm getting the history right here in the family connections. But Men and Annie, and, and I didn't realize this, uh, they had roots in all the way back to Michigan. They started out there. They were married in Michigan five years before my dad was born. I think it was um, 1919 or so when they, when they got married. Rosalie wrote me a little history. So these were some, some elderly people, and that's how I remember them as old folks. And don't have a lot of memories myself of, of their contribution here, but I know they were here, and I know they, uh, without doubt, they, they helped out. <clears throat> um, Mena was a teamster way back in Michigan, and then again, I think in New York. He was as comfortable skidding logs with horses as, as loggers of today are with skidders. It was dangerous work, and uh, Mena was almost killed one time when he was skidding a log, and it caught a stump and, and kicked up and hit him in the head. Um, he, was, he was a man of the woods. He was a maple syrup maker and a hunter. And in later years, he relived his past often, telling stories to most anyone who would listen, as I remember. I wish I could have known him better. But they moved here into this community, uh, and that uh, gets into some other history. Merle will probably share with us the Dan, uh, Daniel Yoder uh, history. Daniel was Anna's father, and uh, he helped them get settled here in, Gla in Marysville. And... Um, they, they settled on the farm where Dwayne is now, and Rosalie remembers milking, a number of them, I'm sure, milking up to 20 cows by hand there. 
and uh, they separated the milk, sold cream in Brook Neal. Um, and Manor kept logging, kept cutting fire, uh, pulpwood. Uh, long after he retired the horses, he had an old Willie's Jeep he used to, to pull, to skid things with. Uh, he was a worker, and, and I remember him as kind of a, just a, a quiet old man with, that was kind of withdrawn a little bit into himself and would talk to himself or, or whoever would listen. Um, but like I say, they lived to a ripe old age, almost 100 for Menno, and, and in their elderly years, the family cared for them. They were a number of places, Irvins, I think, at the last. And their epitaph reads, In God's Care, and, and that's a good place to leave them. <clears throat> Just north one plot more is Gwendolyn Joan Neighbors. Gwen is uh, Ray Neighbors' first wife. Sharon and Joe's mother, and uh, it was a shock. I remember in September, it was our second or third year of school here, and I remember hearing the news. Joe got the news at school that there'd been a bad accident, and we didn't know how serious it was at the time, but, but uh, she, was, she was taken very suddenly. And uh, it, was a, it was a shock for our church community too, certainly for the family, especially for the family, but our whole community here. See, I was, I was 14 then, and I remembered no funerals from our, our group here. There were two graves out here that had happened that had been occupied in 1964, but I was two, and I didn't remember that. So a funeral here was a shock uh, for our community. Again, <clears throat> it was reality, but uh, it was a very hard time for, for the family. Um, Sharon, Joe, and David, and, and their dad, Ray. That was the time that uh, they chose to move the graveyard. We, we earlier had two, two uh, plots out here. Um, kind, of, kind of, I remember playing kickball at Bible school out there around those stones, but when Gwen died, uh, it was decided to move the graveyard back on the hill. And so these, these were left at, uh, where they were at that point, but uh, Gwen was... Ray actually chose a spot out there under the tree uh, for, for Gwen's resting place, and then we later oriented the rest of the graveyard around that. <clears throat> Gwen's epitaph reads, hopefully, until we meet again. <clears throat> Starting the third row on the south side, <clears throat> Robert Edward Yoder. 12-30-1928 to 7-31-2004. Dear Uncle Robert, my dad's brother, Esther's husband, and Joe, Donnie, Sonny, Edna's dad, grandpa to many here, a dear man. Roberts moved here in 1961 to raise their young family and again to help build this church, support this church. Uh, they took over the farm where Dwayne's are now. And my early memories from Roberts are the big house with the banister down the stairway and uh, the deer head out in the dining room with the M1 rifle hanging underneath. I don't know what happened with all those things now, if they're there or not. But, uh, later, I was impressed with Robert himself. He was an approachable man. 
and um, he was interested in me as a young person. I think anyone would have felt that way. And uh, I think he enjoyed telling me hunting stories as much as I enjoyed listening. I always knew him as a gentle man and a studious man. Later, uh, and this jumps a lifetime, later when the polychondritis started to affect his health, he had a cartilage disease that affected everything from his heart to, to different places where tissue, soft tissue is in your body. <clears throat> um, I saw a patience, a steely patience, and a resolve to be, to be Christ-like in suffering and also to be as productive as possible in his waning years. He knew his time was, was winding down. Uh, so his years of tape ministry and German studies and translation uh, served others as well as filling his desire to serve his Savior. <clears throat> he kept us supplied with tapes up here for years and um, kept a library of those and did recording, so forth. He too suffered much, but he persevered well. That's how I would remember him as patient in suffering. He lived years beyond, and, and he, was, he was always interested in, in his medical condition, and he's kind of like Joe. He, can tell you what, he could tell you what was going on and, and why and so forth, and the poly uh, really sort of fascinated him and his, his doc, Dr. Wilson in town. He loved to tell you know, about their friendship, and he did get to be a real friend with the doctors. But... Uh, he would tell me occasionally, you know, well, they said I'd last five years, and this is like year seven, year eight, nine. I'm not sure how many years beyond what his doctors expected him to live that he actually did. But, of course, it eventually did take him. Um, and when he slipped away, we knew where he'd gone. On his epitaph, and his favorite song is, Blessed be the tempest which drives us closer home. <clears throat> Just north of Robert is Alvy Yoder's grave, and that wasn't Alvy's original resting place. He was one of the two uh, graves that had been out here on the north side of the ball field. And... I have become quite fascinated with Alvy and, and uh, his story. I knew very little about him, and most of us know very little about him. But the more I, I see, the more interested I am. And um, probably some from our family's connection. Turns out he's mom, he was my mom's first cousin, is my mom's first cousin. Uh, Alvy... I should mention, is, is Iva Zook's first husband. He's the father of seven. He would have been Joe's father-in-law, uh, Joe's wife, Lois, <clears throat> is Alvy's daughter. Um, turns out Alvy was a friend of my dad's down in Norfolk. They, his dad lived on the farm where my, my dad's parents uh, lived, where my dad lived, and, and Alvy's folks worked for my grandparents 
for, for a number of those years. And uh, so Alvin and my dad were friends. I didn't know that till recently. Uh, at least till he was 15 and my folks, or my dad moved to Stuart Stray after Alvin moved to up in the Grantsville area. <clears throat> and uh, there's a story daddy tells about a um, number of years later when after they had settled here in, in, in Camel County, he was at a conference meeting in Delaware, I believe, or somewhere, and someone called his name, and it was Alvy, and uh, he was there in the food line with him, and, and uh, they visited a while, and that may have been one of the, the things that sparked Alvy's and his family's interest in moving down here. Uh, they were living in Grantsville, but they were a growing family, and they were looking for a place to settle. And uh, so they did. They moved here in 1959. Alvy also was just a month uh, older than my dad. He was born in 1925 as well. So he moved here in 1959, and um, I had a, a really interesting visit with David. David was 10 when his dad passed away, and remembers quite a bit of Alvy still and uh, compares himself to how Alvy was or how he remembers Alvy being and not sure how well that he got along. There were some, some differences there he thinks it would have been. But uh, <clears throat> Alvy was a frugal man. He would squeeze a penny, David said, and um, he would rather be at home he said piddling. He'd rather be at home working with the family. They had, he ran an egg route. They had layers. Um, he was sort of a, he was a mason. Um, Charlie Elliott remembers mixing mud for Alvy uh, on, on the house that the Elliotts have over on Depot Road, still standing there, a brick house. That, of course, Alvy, uh, he built the house, their, their own house, which is right across from the road that goes back to Rich's. Uh, it's burned now and gone, but uh, he had hidden built that house, block house again. Uh, there's a few houses up towards Rustburg, Daddy tells me, there's some of the older ones that Alvy uh, built. But he didn't really hold a steady job as far as, you know, day work. He was, he liked to be home with his family. Not all bad. <clears throat> he... Um, Another interesting thing that David says he thinks really stood him in good stead. You know, Alvy had no premonitions of, of his soon passing, but uh, he was, of course, of course, David was the only one, only, only son of, of seven children. The rest were daughters, so maybe there was some um, reason for it there. But Alvy worked hard at teaching David to go ahead and, and do things that needed to be done, and he would... He'd turn him loose on the tractor and stand back, and he let him hit a tree, and, and they just go out there and they patch up the grill. He said, "Now, son, you got to keep it in second gear. Now you got to slow it down a little bit. Uh, no paddling." But David learned to kind of to go ahead, and he feels like that's helped him in life. And uh, David actually shared this recently at a in a Sunday school and. And his take-home lesson there was, what are we doing about the oncoming generation and preparing them for church work or, or outreach or um, you know, delegating to them, just letting them go ahead with some things, even if there's some bumps. So I thought that was fascinating about Alvy. <clears throat> well, it seems like the day before Alvy died, 
he, that afternoon and evening, he was helping the can, family can peaches. No premonition, um, simple things, leaving a legacy. He had a corn crop out that fall. This was 64, and uh, he had family still down in Norfolk. And he and my dad left at 3 in the morning to go down and, and pick up the, the, a corn picker down there that his brother, Alvy's brother, had said he would loan him or sell him. And so they, they traveled that distance in an old truck, flatbed truck, ton truck, and uh, had breakfast with the folks down there, loaded the picker up, and headed for home. They came across the south side of Virginia and were tur turned up from South or Halifax coming up 501. And close, <clears throat> close to Volans, there was a young man driving south, an international scout, and he crossed the center line and hit their northbound vehicle head on. The, the uh, young man was killed instantly. Uh, Alvy's chest was crushed, and he spoke to Daddy uh, a bit right after the impact, but then was was gone, and then there was a, a terrible fire. Uh, my dad was able to roll away and, and survive with pretty major uh, injuries. But um, Alvy was 39 when this happened, and Daddy was too, of course. <clears throat> you know, his life stopped there, but I think if we take a moment to think about the legacy of, of doing the right thing day by day, uh, training our children, um, loving our families, and just doing the ordinary in Jesus' name that will leave a legacy. Faithfulness one day at a time. <clears throat> Okay, moving on. <clears throat> Next row we have Naoma Zare. <clears throat> she was born 614 of 1921, died 521-2003. Her stone says, in God's care. Neoma is, uh, is Dan's wife, was, was his first wife. She'd be a, a grandmother to, to, uh, to a number of you out here. Um, don't have a lot written about her. I, I remember several things. Um, one was her interest in, in um, getting Sunday school material, English Sunday school material recycled and sent on to English-speaking missions. And um, I don't know how that came to be a cause of hers. That's one thing I remember about her. And, and we were comfortable enough together. She'd call me sometimes and ask me questions about gardening and groundhogs in the garden, things like that. And I, I counted her as a friend. <clears throat> she suffered a stroke in later years and um, and is buried here now. Time slipping away. <clears throat> Ruth Thus Glick. We remember Ruth, don't we? Her passing is 
fairly recent, 2010. She was born in 1920, 123-1920, and she died in June of 2010. Her stone appropriately reads, Sing unto the Lord a new song. And anybody who had cottage meetings over there or, or as we Christmas caroled and so forth for Ruth, even in the later months there when her mind was slipping, uh, her mouth was moving with the words she was, she was singing along. I was thinking about Ruth this morning. Um, got my cup of coffee and there was a, a Tupperware container there. I popped the lid off and there were some sugar cookies right there by my coffee maker. And I thought about Ruth and, and how appropriate that was. She was famous for sugar cookies at Christmas time. Angels and Christmas trees and... I let him sing. She'd bring cookies too, I think. And you know, she was she was Pop's second wife, and came to our community in late '64 um, to to be a mother to those orphan children, or those uh, yeah, to those children of Pop's that their mother had died uh, recently before that, and she filled that role well. And that there's a, there was a note in, in Daddy's book from the. Uh, the church newsletter a few years later is talking about Ruth filling her role as a grandmother so well and giving candy to the children and and uh, sort of the original candy grandma, I think. <clears throat> but that's how we remember Ruth. Uh, I remember, didn't often see tender moments with her and Pop, but I do remember one. I was a sort of a nuisance over their way. They had the nicest pond around. The, the, the big pond had catfish in it, and I would pester them to, for permission to fish. And I remember going over one evening, and I guess I inspired them because uh, I went down to fish. And then soon Pop and Ruth came down to fish together. And um, I remember Pop jumping across the little brook. Pop was fairly agile, and, and Ruth was not so, so much. And as she was trying to get across, she slipped and fell in, and, and she said, Oh, Poppy, help me. And he did. He tenderly reached down and pulled her out. And, and um, yeah, just a, just a tender moment there that, uh, you know, I, I don't remember too many of those, but there was tenderness between them. Dear Ruth, um, yes, she's gone now. She's singing very well. Her mind is quite clear. And next to her is Willis. <clears throat> Willis himself. Where to start with him? Willis, for those of you who didn't know him, he was, he was Pop to all of us. Pop Glick. And his epitaph appropriately reads, Study to show thyself approved unto God. Willis is Wesley's dad and Titus's and, and Caleb's and the number in that tribe. And uh, Pop had a, lar a large practical role in helping establish this congregation here. You know, he wasn't so much the ministerial and teaching type, but, but practical, boots-on-the-ground kind of guy, that was Pop. And uh, he helped a number of farms get established here. Um, interestingly enough, Pop, on his first scouting trip here, was sort of disenchanted. He came from Pennsylvania from Big Valley, and uh, first time they were here, he and Edna, and they were laying in bed that night, and, and they were saying, probably not, let's, let's not move here. And Pop says that sometime, sometime in the night, he, he, <clears throat> he felt like he had a dream, and the Lord was telling him, this is your place. And... Um, 
that was enough, and he made it his place, and he stayed, and he worked hard, and and um, was a major contributor here um, in his own way. I remember him as a gruff old man. Uh, early on, I, like I said, I was I was sort of a nuisance in the community, and I. I remember being over there and interrupting a Glick family picnic for uh, Sunday, Sunday lunch, me and my dog. And I remember Pop chasing my dog off with an axe. And that <laughs> might have flavored my, my, my opinion of him some. But later years, we got along quite well. And I would stop in and see him. And he'd let me hunt on his land. And um, we got along well. He was a studious man. Like his epitaph says, study to show thyself approved unto God. He, he had well-defined views on uh, several issues, prophecy being one of those. And actually, since Pop's gone, we, we don't have such defined views here much anymore. I'm not sure why. But he was a blessing in that he forced many people to study, I think. And um, uh, there were several other things, too, that uh, we won't go into. But Pop was, <clears throat> Pop was a studious man. He was... He was um, a Bible school teacher, Sunday school teacher. Um, and that's one thing that I should mention. You know, this was a small church. We have quite a gathering here tonight compared to the 1950s. Uh, the five, six, seven, eight men that were here then were all used. They were always busy with something. I mean, somebody... We had ladies leading singing here uh, Sunday nights, I remember. So everybody was useful. So you can imagine in, say, uh, when Alvy passed, the, the shock wave it sent through a, a, such a small congregation. <clears throat> but that brings me back to Pop and his, his usefulness. You know, he, he was, he was a, uh, an important person here as well uh, in, this, in this group. <clears throat> I remember Pop, I always will, as a dear old man who smelled like liniment when we carried his body out to the funeral home van. God rest him. Pop's first wife, Edna, was the, she died in 1964, only a month, a little over a month before Alvy did. She, hers was the friend's of Wesley's mother. She was the first funeral at this site. Uh, she was the first one buried here, Edna. I have no recollection of her at all. Uh, talked to a few people who do remember her, and uh, there was some thought that maybe she was a little less than enthusiastic about being here, but that she was a supporter, and she stayed. It was Pop's place, and she stayed, and she was his wife and, and supported him. So we will bless her in that she stayed and, and they raised her family here. And she died at 55 of cancer. <clears throat> her epitaph reads, resting in peace. We're to the back row now. I hope you're still with me. <clears throat> I'll move on through. We have five more, and dear people all, 
On the south side of the back row, we have Sarah, Sarah Yoder, 813 in 1953, and she died in 07, 2007. Her stone reads in loving memory. Sarah's my sister-in-law, Jerry's wife, and um, don't have a lot to say about her. Many of you knew her somewhat or knew of her. Sarah had a debilitating um, disease of her, of the gray matter of her brain that left her in a sort of an Alzheimer's type state and it was a deteriorating one from for many, many years. And um, Jerry actually lost Sarah as a, as a confidant and companion years before she actually passed. But I remember Sarah when they lived back on our place and even before uh, her smile was a pretty regular feature. She was not a complainer, and uh, we didn't know what was going on inside of her mind. Um, but she seemed patient. She'd walk up to get milk when she could still walk, and later on she was more confined to her chair, and eventually the last three years in North Carolina she was... Uh, um, just pretty much an invalid, and Jerry would visit her daily and and uh, do what he could to feed her supper. And uh, she finally slipped away, and uh, I'm thankful that her mind is clear. People like that, we don't know if they're trapped inside and can't communicate out. We don't know if they're if they don't aren't even aware. We don't know those things, so we we must treat them as if they do understand, and I think sometimes they do, but the blessing is that Sarah now is, is ex exquisitely aware. She knows exactly what's going on. She's very coherent and, and understands. Just north, and the next plot is, is Paul Martin, Fanny's husband, Dear Brother Paul, <clears throat> I have a lot of memories of him. Don't have time for too many. Paul was a real contribution here. He made a real contribution. Their family did. Like I said, it's Fanny's husband, Harold's dad, Lynn's dad, um, numerous among us, uh, grandparent, so forth. I still remember back in late 70s there when the, the Martins pulled in and seeing that van load of blonde-headed children pile out and and uh, I was impressed with that family. Fifteen children, most of them along and Paul, a, a very patient man, a man with a lot of mechanical ability that he passed on to most of his children, at least the, the guys. I remember one uh, one very enjoyable trip. You know, you don't, traveling with somebody is, you kind of find out what, if you get along well or, or how, it, how it works. And I had a real nice trip. I think Gary and I actually rode with Fanny and Paul up to Pennsylvania one time. I went up to pick up a van and we took our car and they went and visited family. And we just had a really nice time. And I still, still remember that. Paul was, um, Paul and Fanny, 
they opened their home to many people. There's many, many young folks that went in and out of their doors, just down 20, uh, 501 here. Uh, that was one of the, probably one of the more loving homes that Danny Patterson found himself in before he was killed. The, uh, Paul was a, a, a Sunday school teacher, and we enjoyed him uh, teaching. He had a number of words that he liked to use, and, and uh, you'll recognize these. Paul would talk about the avenues and the realms, and um, I remember this affectionately. Um, and he had a, a phrase he would say sometimes, that remains to be a question. And uh, I was thinking about Paul and, and um, on those avenues and in the realms, and uh, there's no more questions. Paul, Paul has the answers. Daddy and I went down to Fanny and Paul's uh, the evening after he passed, and we were there with Joan and, and Fanny for a while. And I remember what we were told that Paul was a reader. I didn't know that, but that he had, you know, read quite a bit in his day, and but that the last weeks and months he'd spent most of his time with his with his Bible. That that uh, was more important to him, more interesting to him than any of the other material he had around. He was a focused man, especially there towards the end. <clears throat> Paul died in 01, and on his gravestone we have Psalms 23 inscribed. Just north is Lydia Irene Schrock's gravestone, and that that was Amos's is Amos's first wife, Lydia, grandma to a number. My mother-in-law, Barbara's mom, Lydia's mom. Inscribed on her tombstone is are the words "Jesus, I love you," which were her last words. I won't say too much there, it's pretty close to home. But uh, one dear memory we have as a family is the evening before she passed, and she died suddenly, massive heart attack on a Monday morning. And Sunday evening they were at our place, and uh, Lorena had a fever, and we, re we remember um, Grandma holding her and sponging her forehead with a wet cloth, helping with the, the fever. A caring person, and we miss her still. And last, just one gravesite north is the are the host Adlers, Milton and Marion, dear people. <clears throat> the epitaph on their joint stone is, "In thy presence is fullness of joy." Milton was born in January of 1911, he died in 1997. Marion was born in November of 1910 and died on August the 1st of 1996. 
Milton was a, a gentle carpenter, a beloved carpenter, well thought of in the community, crooked thumbed for many uh, run-ins with hammers, but his, his conscience was straight. And uh, you can still talk to folks in, around the area that talk about his building ethics and uh, the, the, how straight his courses of bricks were. And, and um, the only time I saw him just a bit baffled was when Caleb asked him how many nails a carpenter could ethically take home from the job site and not be in trouble with his boss. Milton hardly thought any should go home, and Caleb said, well, what about these? Ten nails on your fingers. Milton had a good sense of humor. <clears throat> uh, a very good and dry sense of humor. Daddy and I were, were out uh, talking through the funeral arrangements with him after Marion had passed the next day, and with the funeral director from Finch and Finch, I believe, and uh, got down to the bottom line, the price, and Milton just sat there and looked at it a little bit, and he said, well, I'm just glad we're not burying in pyramids anymore. <clears throat> but that was Milton's kind of humor. And uh, a dear man, Milton was ordained in the Brethren Church, and... Um, then he, he left the Brethren Church, joined the, the conservative Mennonite, and, and was reinstated as a minister. And they had the option of going to, to Bart, Pennsylvania, or Gladys, Virginia, to serve as ministers after the work had been going here a while, and, and the conference recognized the need. We were recognized as an outreach of Greenwood, Delaware here, and um, they chose here. And like so many of these others, they plugged in and they worked and they endured and persevered and left a legacy here. Um, they are well beloved, Milton and Marion. <clears throat> One sweet memory I have of Marion. <clears throat> Uh, way, way back, they operated a little uh, bookstore over here out of their home. And uh, we would slip over sometimes after services and look through the knickknacks and everything they had there. But, uh, so those are early memories. But years and years and years later, I, this was in 96 when I had my series of, of surgeries and so forth, outpatient surgeries with that cat bite I had. And, and uh, I guess it was October... No, it would have been July the 31st, apparently. And I was in for another surgery that evening, that afternoon, and, and I was in recovery. It was outpatient, and we'd be heading home soon. And, and um, Barbara said, you know, Marion's in the hospital. She had a heart attack. I knew, we knew that. I think I'll go up and see her. She's doing okay, but I'll go up and see her uh, before, while you're still getting your wits back together. And so she did. Barbara went up, and uh, I think a couple of the daughters were there, maybe Mary Sue and Martha. And um, Marion was full of questions about me, not thinking of herself and, you know, recovering from this heart attack. And she said, well, you know, let's just pray for Delvin. You know, he's had this surgery. I said, well, we should pray for him. And she did. She led them in a sweet prayer there for me. 
And I was laying in bed the next morning, we were, and I was, of course, having some pain and so forth. And we got the phone call that Marion had suddenly died. So that's always been special to me, thinking of her and, and um, that bit of contact and interest in my life. <clears throat> a, dear, a dear person. <clears throat> Milton was very lonely and uh, lived on for, it was a number of months, a little over half a year, and then he slipped away in his sleep <clears throat> and went to his reward. In thy presence is fullness of joy, is his epitaph. Well, that concludes our, our walk through our graveyard. <clears throat> this didn't all go exactly where I thought it would, and uh, I don't have real clear and concise challenges for us from these, all these lives, except that I see a thread of, of involvement and concern about this church and a caring for this body, caring for this church, and a caring for what Jesus wanted in their lives. I see a kind of a thread running through these lives that, uh, that gave them the courage to do daily what needed to be done. And uh, I trust we can take that away from here for ourselves. You know in your life what that daily grind consists of and what you struggle with in, in putting one foot in front of the other. Um, but let's be encouraged both with that with their example, and also the realization that life is brief. A year ago, Dan talked to us about the, the dash between the, the dates, and uh, all of these epitaphs, all of these gravestones have that, birth year and a dash and a death year. And uh, really, it's a pretty brief dash. And um, so here at the beginning of the year, let's think about that. Think about our lives, think about how quickly they've gone and how quickly they could go, and think about faithfulness and um, be what we should be as we, as we live here. Thank you very much, and um, I trust this has been a blessing for you as, as it has for me.